Welcome back to the Kansas City Symphony's sweetest little podcast, Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. I'm Mike Gordon, Principal Flute of the Kansas City Symphony. I'm Stephanie Brimhall, the Director of Education with the Kansas City Symphony. And I'm Jason Sieber, the Associate Conductor. Guys, today we are going to be featuring another one of our fantastic musicians from the Kansas City Symphony, our Associate Principal Oboe, Allison Chung. We're going to be asking her plenty of thought-provoking questions. Do we ask anything besides thought-provoking <laughs> questions here on Beethoven Walks Into a Bar? <laughs> but we're going to be asking thought-provoking questions about reed-making, alternate fingerings, oh my. all sorts of oboe stuff, and of course, her journey that led her here to Kansas City. But like so many of the musicians that we featured on the podcast, Allison is both prolific on stage and offstage, as we're about to find out. Oh. Well, that is true. And, you know, we've talked uh, so many times on this podcast about food, places we love to eat, recipes we like to cook for ourselves, uh, and, of course, beverages, too, uh, are always an essential part of our conversation. And I think it would be fair to say that most of the time, actually, if we let things go, our conversation will lead back to food. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it just seems like it's unavoidable. I mean, our last episode with the Kahanes, we were talking about food. But, um, you know, Allison, she not only cooks, bakes, uh, seeks out amazing food, she documents it, photographs it, makes videos about it on her amazing website, littlechung.com. There's even a detailed account of her soon-to-be world-famous cupcake hunt. Wait, a cupcake hunt? I want to go on a cupcake hunt. Me too. Oh my gosh. So we definitely need to learn more about that. But we also can't frost over her incredible Mm. work in music, for sure. She is an active leader here in our Kansas City Symphony community. She serves on our Artistic Leadership Committee, as well as the ever-important Social Media Committee. Uh, During this pandemic time, she created some especially beautiful and thoughtful educational content for our website, which I'm incredibly appreciative of. And um, she was a recent soloist last spring on one of our streamed performances on mysymphonyseat.com. I also have to say that my work on our educational programs that we've done on the Mobile Music Box throughout um, all last season and continuing this season, I have really enjoyed seeing Allison explore the just artistic and musical range of the Baby Shark melody. And I can't wait to get into that as well. So everybody, please welcome the Kansas City Symphony's Associate Principal Oboe, Allison Chung. Hi, thanks for having me. (laughs) Welcome, Allison. Great to have you here. Welcome, Allison. Oh, boy. I haven't had that tune in my head since our catchy tunes episode from season one. Thanks a lot, Mike. I appreciate that. I should just, before we jump in, I should should clarify. So at all of the concerts we perform for students um, on our mobile music box, we bring a chamber ensemble, and then we get to kind of have like an up-close and more detailed interaction interaction with um, the individuals in our in our orchestra, but you get to hear, you know, the specific instruments. So Mike has done them where he's played some Peter and the Wolf excerpts and some, you know, all sorts of, you've played Sesame Street, I know, some fun stuff. But Allison's always gets the biggest hit, I mean, the biggest reaction. Um, she she plays Baby Shark for the kids, which they all adore. So I, I love that you've adapted that. <laughs> well, what started happening towards the end of the spring was that Raymond, the clarinetist in the quintet, 
he was his instrument was introduced before me and he would then play baby shark <gasps> he so, did start stealing yeah. it or he, there were a few times where i was introduced first and then he would be introduced and then he'd play baby shark Still. All right. Well, here, <laughs> Allison, I'm going to make you. I'm going to make you a deal right now because you know that I I host all of those concerts and I will always introduce the oboe first. I well, will do it from now on. I don't want to. I feel like he's still going to like play Baby Shark. So I just spent a week with my three year old niece and I pulled her. I was like, "So what are your favorite songs?" Because I was trying to find. Excuse me. I was trying to find a new instrument demo, but. Uh-huh. He picked I'm a Little Teapot and um, the Itsy Bitsy Spider. Perfect. Also popular. Um, and then my her mother, my sister, was like, what about Frozen songs? But it's, oh. I feel like Frozen was so 10 years ago, right? Oh, no. Frozen, no? Is, okay. Frozen is forever. I will say, too, just to kind of give more street cred to our woodwind uh, community, but um, Ann Bilderback, who's our principal bassoon, she became a huge star in the in these kids' concerts because she learned the uh, Among Us theme and plays that before all of her uh, as her demo um, to introduce the bassoon, and everybody loves that, especially like the like the fourth and fifth graders think that's amazing. Man, I really have to get with the program. I just like I just play Sesame Street all the time, and I'm dumbfounded that the kids don't know it. Well, no, but you have to have HBO now to watch Sesame Street. See, so I didn't see? know that until you told me. So I got to yeah. Allison and I will get together offline and we'll rework my repertoire. Perhaps we'll. You can yeah. pull her niece. I have a lot of nieces, uh, <laughs> age range from. Oh, uh, three to nine. So I think okay, maybe covers. we can set up a Zoom. Yeah. <laughs> yes, let's, and they'll let's just set start up a Zoom call. That'd be great. That'd be very helpful for me. <laughs> I do want to say so. The week I spent with this three-year-old niece, um, my sister would play a lot of kids' songs in the car, and on this Spotify album or whatever, there was a different version of Baby Shark, and it's better. I forget the melody right now, which is good because it was an earworm for about a week, but. Um, mm. We should find that and try to make that the better baby shark version. <laughs> All right. So I'm going to make a deal with our listeners is that we will find that whatever Allison says is the better baby shark. We're going to find that. We're going to put the link in the show notes so we can all decide. Well, how how on earth could it get better? I, I don't who, know. But <laughs> Who knew that we would talk so much about baby shark on this podcast? I know. I know. We're really, we're really going off on an early tangent here, but it's actually good that that you mention family, because before we get too far off the beaten path here, I want to talk about your culinary adventures. I want to talk more about Baby Shark, of course. <laughs> but uh, you you come from uh, a pretty musical family, I would say. And first off, I would love for you just to talk a little bit about you know, how your journey in music got started, how you got exposed to it at first, why you chose the oboe or why the oboe chose you, perhaps. How how did uh, how did you end up getting into this mess of reed making and awkward fingerings? Um, so I guess it just started with having parents who really appreciated music. Um, they aren't musicians, but um, well, I guess my dad he was surrounded by it, and he was in the junior high band. I think he played the clarinet, um, but he plays the guitar and loves to sing. And my mom, I think she always wanted to take voice lessons as a kid, but she didn't have the opportunity. So um, she just wanted my sisters and me to take lessons and be exposed to um, different opportunities in music. So I have two older sisters. They are string players. They both started on violin. 
and one ended up becoming a violist. And I have a twin sister, and we, the four of us all at one point had, were taking violin and piano lessons, um, and it was Suzuki, so that means the parent is involved with uh, practicing, and it was too much for my mom, and I think I was the <laughs> reason why my twin and I quit the violin, because I was um, a real pill. <laughs> I, just, I, I didn't like it. I remember, I mean, I was young, I was maybe four, but I remember thinking the strings hitting my finger it was just so awkward and it hurt so I was like I don't want to do this and I was probably just complaining a lot so she said enough you're not playing this anymore um but we stuck with the piano I think the four of us probably played piano through high school or we stopped when we got to high school and um so my twin and I were we were basically groupies for my older sisters when they did their um musical activities so they were part of this Suzuki violin group that toured the world and so we would hang out during the rehearsals and watch them and then when they got older and joined youth orchestra we would go to their concerts so my mom thought it was good for us to play an instrument where we could do these things because the piano is really solitary so um, she decided on the instruments we would play and so she picked the oboe and the clarinet and she had us each take one lesson on each and then we would decide which one we wanted to play. And I think for about a couple hours, I was like, I'm playing the clarinet. And then I thought about it and I was like, what if? And I thought about my dad like bothering me <laughs> about it since he had played it when he was younger. And I was like, nope, I'm not going to do that. So I last minute, I was like, I'm going to play the oboe. And so for very selfish reasons, I am an oboist. What did, what did your sister pick? Uh, well, it was only between the two. So she ended up being the clarinetist. Oh, okay. So uh, it, I didn't yeah. know if you were both given the opportunity to choose, both choose the oboe or both oh. choose the clarinet. I see. I actually don't know if that was an option, but we didn't even, I think we're very different in personality mm-hmm. and we didn't want to end up playing the same instrument. So that didn't even occur to us. I could ask her now, though. <laughs> Plus, we all know a house with two oboists is that's never going to be a good thing. I think that's that's just asking for lots of problems and issues. I'm just <laughs> kidding. I'm just kidding, Allison. I actually know Alice, one of Allison's older sisters that she's talking about. I went to to school with uh, Melissa, great violinist. Um, so, are all four of you playing professionally now? Uh, I'm the only one playing in an orchestra. Um, my yep. oldest sister, the violist teaches and also freelances and the sister that you spoke of she had positions in a few orchestras and now she's raising her daughter so she's not playing as much anymore oh and then my twin is now the executive director of the houston youth symphony so um, she's taken the admin route Mm -hmm. that's a that's That's an excellent route to take by the way yeah just So one thing that a lot of people might not know about the oboe, Allison, is that you have to make your own reeds. And this is quite a laborious process, takes many hours, many years of of honing your craft. And it's a, a major part of, of the hours you put into being a great professional oboist. If you, first of all, I, want, I would love to hear you tell our listeners a little bit about that process. And if you could do it all over again, would you have picked the clarinet who has their own <laughs> reeds? And you just buy them, and you could have saved all that time in your life. (laughs) All right, so I'll answer that question first. Um, So I think what I really like about the oboe, and knowing like my skill set, I don't really have like fast fingers or like 
like really great technique. And I think the clarinet is a little more flashy in that way. So I think the oboe suits my strength. Like I love playing slower, pretty things. <laughs> <laughs> and that's like all the, all the excerpts in, in my auditions were like slow, pretty solos. So um, yeah, I, I don't think I'd give that up. Because <laughs> uh, going back to my twin sister, when we were um, auditioning for things and she was like, your excerpts are so much easier than mine. I was like, oh. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what to say. <laughs> it's it's a little true though. <laughs> but you could maybe playing lyrically is difficult in its own way. But none of that finger noodly stuff that the clarinets have. To Suffer do. la tambeau. Mm-hmm. Well, right? the Ravel. So I I'm interested in in hearing hearing you talk a little bit about the reed making process because I think a lot of our listeners don't understand, you know, the time and the money and, you know, the patience that goes into reed making. But just before you answer it, I'll tell a quick story. So I have a very good friend who, after 15 years of playing um, professionally, and he was in the field band, switched to an administrative role, and he was an oboist, um, and switched to an administrative role. And he was recently kind of redoing some stuff in his house. And the, the desk, like his reed-making desk, he doesn't use anymore. He doesn't play anymore. It's He's put it away. But he could not bring himself to, um, I guess, on, on his chair, like, is, like, just, like, years and years and years worth of string that he's, like, tied around to, like, wrap reeds or whatever. And he can't get rid of the string because he's, like, it's the only proof that I have of, like, those, like gazillions of hours that I spent at this desk and I can't get rid of it, <laughs> which I think is... Um, really dedicate, it shows a lot of dedication, but maybe it can get a little bit lonely. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, he could look of it as like a work of art, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I do have a bit, it's, I put all, or I tie my reeds on a C-clamp. So like if one day I am no longer making reeds, I could just hang that on something and then uh-huh. call it art. Why not? <laughs> so what is that process like, though? Can you just, like, kind of talk us through what uh, the reed-making process is? Um, so I think a lot of people might wonder why we can't just purchase reeds at the store, and they are of very low quality, so it's better to have the control of making the reed from scratch. So mm-hmm. um, I order the materials, and the cane comes in a tube form, and I have to go through steps to break it down into um, where it's usable to make into a reed. So first I have to break it down into smaller pieces, put it through a gouging machine, which makes it thinner. Then we put it through um, a mold that shapes the cane into the correct um, measurements. Uh, I don't really know what exactly the details of what makes it good. I probably should, but <laughs> I just use a shape that I've used it's for like a decade. just by feel. Yeah, yeah. I mean- yeah. It's not that important. Yeah. So, um, and then what you take the cane and what makes it a double read is you fold it over and then um, tie it onto a piece of cork and then you clip off that folded part and that then there are two pieces of cane. And then the opening, then that's the double read part. So um, I just did the measurements so I could tell you guys the surface area of the cane is is seven millimeters wide on the finished reed and about like 20 millimeters in length. So it's very small. And so I think the reason why oboe players tend to be neurotic is because it's such a small space that we have to um, shave off 
and make the right vibrations for the reed to work. So a slip of the knife can like ruin hours of work. (laughs) And so I try not to think about it too much. I mean, if I really thought about how, you know, how many hours I put into just getting to that point, I think I would have a nervous breakdown. (laughs) So um, to make reed making a little less painful, I watch a lot of shows because I could just watch TV and then like look at the read and um, and make it while enjoying some Netflix. Or you can listen to Beethoven walks into a bar episode. I did do that yesterday. <laughs> do no, I'm not even lying. I did listen to some episodes. There you go. <laughs> what are you, What are you watching on Netflix right now? What is if if you were going to sit down to make some reads today? What would you be watching? I'm watching The Chair with Sandra O. Oh. Um, it just came out mm. like a week or two ago, and then I listened okay. to her Fresh Air episode yesterday. Um, but yeah, I love her, and the show is is interesting. I think it's a really quick watch because there's only like six episodes, is what people tell me. So I'm going to be done with it in a day, probably, if I make <laughs> a lot of reading today. <laughs> yeah, you know, if I could, I want to I want to react to to two things that you've said so far because, of course, you know, me being a flute player, we sit next to each other uh, in orchestra pretty frequently, as in always. So a- as a casual observer who has nothing like read making to do, you know, during rehearsal or any other time, I have a lot of time just to sit and watch and see what happens with the oboes. And, and first I will say, I-, I am always jealous that you all have truly the most beautiful, lyrical, gorgeous solos. And I remember listening, you know, to o- oboe auditions over the years, including yours, you know, where you just, you know, a flute audition is, it's more, it's kind of like, uh, you know, skydiving meets daredevil show meets, you know, Olympic race. Like everything's high, fast and loud with a couple of exceptions. And this is just all this beautiful music. And I thought, oh gosh, I wish, you know, I wish sometime I would get to play that. But, um, you know, you sit next to an oboist, and every every read, it seems like it's just one more scrape away from being perfect. You know, oboists always <laughs> have reads out at rehearsal. They're always adjusting. They're always, you know, being fussy with it, you know, because it's, it's just, it's such a natural material, right? That's very variable, very unpredictable. And they struggle with it, and it's incredible. And then they put the read in the thing, and they out comes this incredible music. So um, always... There's one piece in particular that stands out to me. The Brahms Violin Concerto, which I know you know. Second movement, huge oboe solo. It's on, audi- on auditions always. And and it's, you know, it's really challenging on the oboe, but it's but it's just beautiful and lyrical, and you would probably never assume that it's as challenging as it is. And and the thing that I sometimes do that's annoying, because, I mean, oboe players really, you know, struggle with it, and I... I just pick up my flute and I start playing the melody sometimes to be a jerk at break. And I just think, gosh, oh, I, wish, Mike. I wish this was my excerpt, you know, that <laughs> would be so great. Like I could just chill out. I wouldn't have to play like classical symphony or something like that. <laughs> well, can I say too, just because um, in addition to the reeds, the, the instrument itself is very temperamental. So I'm a, a clarinetist and, and oboes and clarinets are made of similar wood uh, but then you have, you know, Mike's golden flute, his gilded flute that, you know, uh, he could play that flute for years and years and years. And especially oboes, just like reeds, they're very temperature 
sensitive and kind of not weather resistant at all. So things like humidity and things can change that. Can you talk a little bit about kind of dealing with that? And um, because I know like cracks in oboes are really common, right? And like, what is the, uh, and then maybe talk about like what the lifespan is of an oboe versus, you know, Mike, how long have you been playing your flute? Uh, You know, 20 years at least. Right. (laughs) Allison, (laughs) is your oboe 20 years old? (laughs) No, it just turned six. And I think even that is yeah. Um, so I think a professional, well, a professional oboist, uh, I think I'm, I was told maybe like between like four and five years, you should probably get another one. Mm-hmm. And then what's frustrating about playing a new instrument is you have to break it in slowly so it doesn't crack. So I know Raymond talked about why the instrument cracks is because the wood expands and then the what is it? It can't handle all the temperature changes, and so it splits. So I oboes, I think because it's narrower than um, a clarinet, mm-hmm. it has more propensity to crack. I don't know. I'm making this up. Maybe someone smarter will have a better answer. But um, the breaking in the instrument slowly when you first get it um, takes about a few months. And I think a lot of times people are eager to, you know, just, oh, I have a new instrument. I want to bring it to work, but then it cracks. And so you just have to be patient. And also the instrument that you buy is not going to sound like what it will once it's broken in. So Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times you have to think about the potential it has. And I still don't really understand that. (laughs) (laughs) um, We'll see you in the next year or so when I need to get a new instrument. But I think... I've always had um, friends help me pick out an instrument. At least they like listen to it, and then they tell me if it, it usually have like two or three to try from, and they tell me like which one sounds best out of the three. But um, I think the advice I got was make sure you just plan a good read, so you know like it's not the read but the instrument um, that you're listening for when you're trying out a new instrument. It's fascinating. Uh, I want to shift gears a little bit here, Allison, and and talk about your work with the ALC, the Artistic Leadership Committee. We had um, Christy Velliser on the podcast last season, and she talked about the MC, the Musicians Committee. She's the head of that. Uh, And both of these committees have very important roles in a professional orchestra. Um, Talk a little bit about the ALC and, and these various roles that you play. Uh, to help the symphony succeed, and also how that group has been working very closely with our management team and conductors to adapt to the pandemic this past year, the mobile music box programs that we've created, and just getting ready for this coming year where we hope to return to much more normal programming for an orchestra. So um, the Musicians Committee, the MC, deals with work conditions, and so the ALC deals with Um, the artistic side of things. So I'm still a fairly new member. I joined last year. So I'm still learning exactly what we do in a regular season. (laughs) But (laughs) last year, we were um, instrumental in helping program the Mobile Music Box concerts and also helped um, Michael Stern um, with the programming of the My Symphony C virtual concerts. Um, and so uh, a big, um, or something that was important to us was to program diverse uh, pieces by composers that were um, of underrepresented um, 
communities. And so my group, I, I, it was, you know, something I guess we, I never thought of when I programmed chamber music back in college. And so I got to learn a, a lot of different pieces and find really great works by female composers, black composers. Um, and I think the other groups too also had a good time exploring mm-hmm. that music. Talk, talk about that just a little more actually, because I think it's, it's um, always the case that the ALC, you know, contributes some, some input in, into programming. But I think if I'm not mistaken, um, this recent period was, was really uh, unique and, and special in a lot of ways because you, you all had pretty constant uh, involvement and communication and collaboration with, you know, the other parts of the organization, the music director, uh, Jason, our assistant conductor, of course, and managers. So talk a little bit about that process and just kind of having to reinvent from scratch some form of a season that was that was possible during the pandemic. So I'm learning this is not normal. <laughs> We this is not normal. <laughs> right. We normally don't program a season. So um, it, I think just we, even when we came up with, uh, in some meetings, we would, you know, leave the meeting with an idea of what we wanted, but then we had to pivot a lot. I think that was the key word for last year. And so um, at first we were just doing strings only on stage. And so we tried to find... Um, works that fit that instrumentation um and that would be i we always have to think like is this worth or no that doesn't sound right is this something people will enjoy i think all music is worth playing but we have to think about the audience too because they might look at a name like george walker and think oh i don't know who this is but you know we want to present them with something that they'll want to come back to and maybe explore on their own music by him and then later on in the season, we were bringing back wind players. So then we had to find works with, that could fit with the limitations of the stage plot because we were still distancing people. Um, so I, I really wanted to play music by um, Florence Price, but her orchestral works have three winds per, or mm-hmm. yeah, three winds per instrument. Right? Am I saying mm-hmm. that right? <laughs> Yeah, for a second, we couldn't fit that on stage. And so um, it was just uh, doing a lot of research. There is a lot, there are a lot of resources out there. um, And I was really impressed with that. There's like a database for um, black composers. I think just, I forget what it was called, but um, they had Asian composers on there. And you could even just like click like which Mm -hmm. um, ethnicity you wanted to find. um, And then they would list the instrumentation and, sometimes have like YouTube links to the pieces. So that was really um, a nice resource. I think, you know, one thing you said too is, is what I found really neat about this process um, was not only finding music that our audience, you know, would be new to our audience and exposing our audiences to new rep, but I think it exposed our musicians and certainly, you know, those of us on the periphery, to new composers and new repertoire as well. And I think that was one of the really positive things to come out of this is, you know, really giving you all the opportunity to explore repertoire and composers that you would have never, you know, looked into in the past. And, you know, I think that was a huge benefit 
what benefit sounds like a bad, nothing, (laughs) COVID's not a benefit to anyone, but, you know, it did allow us this pathway to kind of take a step back. A silver lining. So, yeah, and and, and explore things um, new to everyone. Yeah, definitely. And I think for me, uh, I don't have the opportunity as much anymore since I don't normally play chamber music to program things. So I'm always at the, um, you know, or I, I always just have to play what we're told to at work. So, you know, there's life beyond like Brahms and Beethoven. And that was really exciting to explore. Yeah. I will say that during normal times, you know, I'm thinking about the before the pandemic and now coming out of it, the ALC has also been especially helpful just as a wonderful group of people to give more feedback, you know, programs that I've come up with or Stephanie and I have come up with together we do present them to the ALC um, to get feedback. And nine times out of 10, everything is fine. But occasionally someone catches something that maybe we didn't catch that, for instance, we just played that piece last year on a family program, or this is too brass heavy, the brass are going to get completely worn out. And the night before they're playing a very difficult opera where they're going to be worn out or something like that, you know, so the ALC is very helpful in thinking about you know, you mentioned the MC is about working conditions, but the ALC thinks about things from an artistic standpoint, not just of what is the best thing to present as an orchestra and for our audience, but also those other considerations of how are we going to be at our best Mm -hmm. as musicians on stage. And I think that's an extremely important factor in, in us presenting ourselves in the, in the best possible light at every performance. So you also uh, serve on the social media committee. And I think I think in many ways, uh, particularly uh, in this last year and a half, uh, that's become an important extension of your artistic leadership work, because you know we've all had to find as individuals and organizations, you know, new ways to deliver music to to listeners to our community, uh, and I think certainly for myself as an individual, social media has become an important part of that in a new way for me. But, you know, I, I fully admit I was and still am pretty much of a Luddite when it comes to uh, social media. And you have a lot of experience with it, you know, partly through, through your own website, which we'll talk about, um, but through music as well. And I think you're the perfect person um, to be helping us lead this effort. So if you would talk a little bit about, about how you, um, how you worked with social media uh, to to help us get our music and our our message out there, and and how you kind of envision it as a tool to complement the things you do uh, on the artistic leadership side. So, since we weren't able to perform regularly, it was important for us to connect with the audience, and um, through Facebook and Instagram, it was the perfect way to still tell everybody, "Hey, we're here, still making music," and. We want to, you know, share our music with you virtually and um, even though we can't perform on stage. So um, we would, we asked the musicians if they wanted to share anything while, right when the world shut down. And um, and then it, it, beyond music, I think it was just a way to maybe give a glimpse of what it's like backstage in our lives, you know, outside of. The concert hall. So, if a musician wasn't entirely comfortable with um, maybe recording themselves, we found a way to like show um, their hobbies, 
or um, even the Instagram takeovers were fun for mm -hmm. the audience. So then they could see maybe what the uh, what a day in the life of a, music a musician would be like. Um, so people would share recipes or their exercise routines and their pets. And I think it kind of breaks that barrier between like um, the stage and the audience. And so people kind of feel like, oh, I have a connection to this person that I see from far away. And um, maybe that gets them excited to see us perform the next time. So talking about food and, uh, and you know, musicians posting recipes, I know a lot of our musicians and, and several of our guests on this podcast have been uh, very into cooking. Uh, Shannon Finney, um, for sure. And uh, Elena, our principal librarian, Elena Lentz-Talley is, a, you know, an amazing baker. But you, I feel like, have taken it even a step further um, with this, this website that you have um, where you write about food, you photograph food. It's, it seems that cooking is a, is a true passion of yours. Can you talk a little bit about that and what kind of what led you down this path? Um, so I think the passion for food came from growing up in a household where my grandma made the most amazing Korean food every day. And I think I only now realize how much work she put into it but growing up I was like oh whatever you know like oh here's another like Korean dish you know and she I was telling a friend yesterday she made her own tofu from scratch wow. and then I only found out that she made her own soy sauce too I mean this is incredible I didn't know wow. that was even possible <laughs> nice. um but and my whole family we love to eat and I, I there was a point in college where I was in a chamber group and it was a quintet Every the four other people in the group were talking about how they hated eating and they just ate because they had to. And I was like, "What is this? Is this I don't know what that means. <laughs> yeah. Where's the joy Speaking in life?" Speaking a foreign language to me. <laughs> so, yeah. um, just growing up in a family that loves food so much, and um, I think uh, because my grandma cooked for us, we wanted to find our own voice, I guess, in cooking. So. We, my, uh, a few of my sisters and I love to bake, and that was something my grandma didn't do. But I think because she didn't, that's why we wanted to. And I don't know. I can't speak for my other sisters, but I'm very hesitant to make Korean food because I don't want to spoil the memories of her good cooking mm. with my poor, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, what recreate or re whatever recreations of the dishes she made and. She's no longer um, around, but we also don't have the recipe she had. So oh, no. it's, those were all lost. Oh. And my mom just says, just Google it. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, they're not ever going to be exactly like grandma's dishes. Um, you know, but any good, and maybe your grandma was like mine, any good grandma dish, like it was never like precise, like a half teaspoon of this and whatever. It was like, you know, put this in until it feels moist enough and then add a little of this to like, you know, it, until it, until it feels right, like add a dash of this. My grandmother's recipes were never, were never precise. It was all, it was all in her head and her, like the feeling, you know, when she was actually mm -hmm. cooking. Yeah, so I guess I might not have ever been able to recreate them if she even gave me the recipes. There you go. And you, if you do, they're never going to be as good, right? Yeah, that's I mean, true. we never make anything as good as our grandma did, obviously. <laughs> I did try to make my first batch of kimchi like a month ago, and it was passable, but I don't think I'd feed it to anybody else. 
only <laughs> like it was edible for me. Um, but I'll, you know, I'll try again. It was, yeah, that I, uh, my grandma made good kimchi. And so I'm, I was just trying to like get the memory from that by making it. Cause it, this was made with green cabbage. Normally it's made with Napa cabbage. Mm-hmm. And I don't think you, they sell that anywhere or even have it at restaurants. So I was like, I'm going to try to do yeah. it. And you know, I think I need many more <laughs> trials with that recipe. Well, we, we will volunteer ourselves. We'll volunteer ourselves yep, to yeah. be like test kitchen for you. So anytime. Yep. Okay. I'm here to strongly endorse Korean food of all sorts. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I'll just put absolutely. all the kimchi in the work fridge and then stink it up, right? And people could just take a jar. <laughs> Love there it. you go. Yeah. As long as the work, the nice thing is the work fridge is downstairs where all the musicians are. So you you can leave it down there. It, it won't bother me in the, in the upstairs at all. That's fine. My, I think, you know, I think part of it is this is just my perception from having met some uh, Korean moms and grandmas along the way that like to cook. The whole cuisine is basically founded upon having various bubbling pots going like almost 24 seven, right? Yes. I don't know. That's what I always see. I don't know what's going into them or coming out of them. And then, you know, at various times of day meals appear, but no matter what is happening, pots are bubbling somewhere. Yeah. It's, I didn't realize my grandma would cook things for like 18 plus hours. And I tried to make this beef broth um, over the winter and I, I was like, I can't sleep with this smell. Just like, it would go waft into my room, and it, I, I don't know if I'd really want to do that again. I don't think I have the patience, but um, yeah, I it, it Korean food. I think you have to like develop the flavors over time. So it's slow, slow cook. <laughs> um, anyway, getting back to why I have the website. Um, so I I think it's mainly because my memory isn't great anymore, and I'd like to document things so I could go back and remember things. So I had this summer in Chicago, I was playing with the Grant Park Orchestra and I wanted uh, something outside of making reads and learning music uh, because that was stressful enough. I needed a little bit of joy in my life that summer. So I, I remember just like, this was maybe a few years into the cupcake craze and so I was like, you know what, I'm just going to like explore the city and go to all these cupcake bakeries and document it. So that's why I started the website. Just And then I had like a whole rating system. And um, I had I maybe went to like 20 bakeries that summer. Um, had some pretty bad ones, but also <laughs> some pretty good ones. At this point, I, it's really hard for me to eat a good cupcake because I've eaten so many. So most of them are mediocre. <laughs> <laughs> And my favorite cupcake was in Seattle, and I only just learned that that bakery closed. Oh, so, oh no. no. Yeah, it's really sad. So I'll have to find another great cupcake bakery. But I, if I want to plug any good ones for Kansas City, I really like Dolce Bakery and mm-hmm. Bloom Baking, um, which is in the River Market. Those have pretty great cupcakes. Good recommendation. Now, have you found any recipes for yourself that stand up to... Uh, some of the best cupcakes that you've had? Have you ever made a cupcake for yourself that you're like, this is one of the best? Yeah, you kind of went on a chocolate chip cookie exploration too on your blog. Oh yeah, so. I needed, I, that was because I was like, I need a distraction from winter because I hate winter. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, but cupcakes, I think, I, I because now I'm so picky when I eat them, I don't want to make them because 
for fear that it's just not going to be worth the time and effort. But I, there is a really good cake recipe from King Arthur Flour. It's just a classic birthday cake. So it's yellow cake with chocolate frosting. And um, I've made them into cupcakes and it's really good. It's simple. It's, it's no, it's like no frills, but sometimes I don't, I don't need something fancy. I just need it to taste good. So I recommend that. And then you could add some flair and with sprinkles <laughs> on top, but I don't think sprinkles really add anything. Just a little visual, uh, you know, eye candy. Less is more. Mm -hmm. Less yes, is more. Less is more. Well, all this talk about food is making me hungry. Um, but I'm curious, Allison, when you're eating all these amazing creations that you are making on your food blog, what do you like to drink with them? We always ask all of our guests, what's your favorite beverage? And then if you were sharing that beverage and perhaps a cupcake with Beethoven, mm. what would you ask Mr. Beethoven? So I'm not sure this pairs well with sweets, um, but I really <laughs> like... A Negroni and anything in the Negroni family, so like a Boulevardier. Yeah. I think I've had it with tequila, but I'm not even sure what that's called. But um, Campari, sweet vermouth, and then liquor of choice. So, um, and then when the world shut down, I realized how easy they were to make, and so I just bought the ingredients because I don't normally make myself cocktails, but um, Negronis I can make. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, and so the question I would ask Beethoven, I was trying to think like. Maybe uh, something like oboe specific. And so I would ask him, um, so I know he used the English horn in a couple um, chamber music pieces, and they were always in the setting of two oboes and an English horn. But maybe someone can correct me, maybe he wrote other pieces for English horn. Um, but I would ask him why he didn't want, or if there was a reason why he didn't use the English horn in an orchestral setting or in, other, in any other pieces. Yeah, because Berlioz did shortly after that with his Symphony Fantastique. So that would be a good question to ask. Indeed. And he added piccolo to the orchestra, of course, but not the English horn. And I'd much rather hear an English horn than a piccolo if it was up to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, this has been a great conversation, uh, but our loyal listeners will remember, even though it's been a little while now, that... For all of our guests uh, from the KCS family, we like to play a little game called Bar Talk. And since we have a real live food blogger here with us, and the three of us hosts certainly aren't shy about expressing our own opinions on food, we're going to play a special edition of Bar Talk that I call Make It, Buy It, Try It. Mm. So mm. the way this works, in each round... You'll, be, you'll each be presented with three food or beverage items, and you'll say which ones you would make for yourself, which ones you would buy from a store or restaurant, and which item you're not so sure about, but you'd be willing to try a little taste. So you'll each have 30 seconds to tell us your reasoning behind your choices. And as always, I will award completely meaningless points as capriciously as possible. <laughs> Do we understand the rules? It's very complex. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah, we got it. Yes. Okay. okay, excellent. Here we go. So, uh, first round, here are your three food items. Steak frites, banana maple bread pudding, or banh mi sandwich. Again, that's steak frites, banana maple bread pudding, banh mi sandwich. Allison, you're our guest. You're up first. All right. So, I would make the bread pudding since I like to bake. Um, I would buy the steak because I'm not good at uh, making steak. 
<laughs> at home and neither are uh, not good at making french fries. <laughs> and then, <laughs> I mean, I like banh mi, so that's not so much a try it, but um, what is it? Like pate? That's, I think well, for a lot of people, that's kind of a try it type of food. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that is my answer. We will accept that answer. <laughs> All right, good. You can add your own food item if you so choose. New rule to the game. Excellent. Okay, so uh, Jason. Uh, okay, I would definitely make the steak frites because I love to grill steak, and I'm not that good at French fries, but I'm decent enough, so I would definitely make that one. I would buy. I would go to a restaurant and get the banh mi sandwich because I definitely am not an expert in Vietnamese food, and I always love a good banh mi. And I would try the banana maple bread pudding, um, but I'm not much of a sweets guy. I'm not much of a dessert guy, so I would try it, but probably just a little bit. Not a sweets I'm gonna, guy. I'm going to give you a I point. I got a point. Because I yes. am also not a sweets guy that much, and I, I would like to try your french fries because I have never made okay. a good one in my life, and that's something <laughs> okay. I just, I've given up on. Stephanie, your I didn't turn. say they were good. I just said I can make them. Well, if you made them, and I believe they're good. Okay. Stephanie, you're up. All right. Well, the Texas girl in me would clearly make the steak frites. Um, I am excellent at making steak, and I also have an air fryer that I have, have perfected the, the art of French frying in the air fryer. Mm. I would buy the banana maple bread pudding. I love bread pudding. I hate baking. I'm terrible at it. I don't have the patience for it. I can't bake. And like Allison, I love a great banh mi sandwich. So, I mean, I would try it because I would want to eat it, but I'm not afraid of it. It's not new to me. But I also wouldn't want to try and make it because I don't have much experience with Vietnamese cuisine. Man, I got to give thumbs up three ways around Whoa. that round. Yay! It's because, a tie. Because again, you tie. said making French fries. I was a little put off by the fact that you said air fry. Oh my, you just don't know. Thing. I don't know. I've never tried one. No. I don't believe you can fry something without boiling oil, but I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. All right, second round. It's going to get a little more interesting now. So, uh, our three items are kimchi frito pie, flaming hot mm. cheetos cupcake. Again, that's flaming <laughs> hot cheetos cupcake, bacon cheddar scones. Jason, you're first. Oh boy, this is a tougher one. Um, I would make the flaming hot Cheetos cupcakes, even though I don't know how to make a cupcake. I would go to Allison's <laughs> blog and learn. Uh, and I love flaming hot Cheetos, and they're always on hand at my house. So that would be what I'd make. I would try the bacon cheddar scones, although I'm not a big scones fan. So I would try it just because I like bacon. I mean, who doesn't love bacon? Uh, and I would definitely buy a kimchi Frito pie. That sounds amazing. I would love to go to a restaurant and purchase that. I might even get two. I'm so hungry right now. Oh, I'm oh. sorry. Wait. You you were you were doing pretty well. Flamin' Hot Cheetos Cupcake is just a bridge too yeah. far for me. Uh, what? Oh, okay, I, I good to know. know. I would totally make that. I don't know, man. All right. Uh, Allison, good to know. you're up. So, Mike, should we tell them why these aren't totally random dishes that you're picking don't don't, oh, don't oh, tell them oh. the secret uh-oh oh not yet okay also uh-oh. i want to disclose that i'm not much of a sweets person either i just bake <laughs> and i eat the cupcakes she's just trying to get None brownie makes points any sense. no pun intended <laughs> but okay. i don't know can, how to like you can justify tell why okay oh the secret is these are things that i've either made or were featured 
like I bought them on, um, so that were featured on my blog. So um, I see I will, how it works. I will talk about the Flaming Hot Cheetos cupcake later, but I'll answer the question. I will make the bacon cheddar scones because there's a really good recipe that I use to make them. Um, I will buy the kimchi frito pie and I will try the, oh, do I have to explain why? The, uh, I guess frito pie, I tried to make it and I'd like to see how other people, if it tastes better (laughs) 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 by a professional. And then the flaming hot Cheetos cupcake, I would try it because it's just too weird. I mean, the flavors in a cupcake. You're going to get a thumbs up. Number one, because obviously these are your food items. Number two, Frito pie is, I think, a Texas delicacy that I learned about in my time there. And it sounds wrong and it's just so incredibly right. So adding kimchi, I mean, oh, see, Stephanie's offended because we've... I'm not offended. I'm waiting for my turn. All right. But you're you're it's, stealing it's my your, answers. It's your turn. You're up. Well, thanks, Mike. Um, I would make the kimchi Frito pie because any good Texas girl knows how to make a Frito pie. And I would just find a recipe that adds the kimchi because I'm a, I'm a good Texas girl. Um, I would buy the bacon cheddar scones cause they sound delicious, but again, I do not bake. And, uh, I would try the tiniest bite of a flaming hot Cheetos cupcake just to say I did. Yeah, that's the right answer. Aww. I know. All right, one more. I'm never ever going to win this game. One more I'm round. Never going to win for all the marbles. Our final three food items. You ready? Here we go. <laughs> Zucchini tater tots, Taiwanese popcorn chicken, green chili chicken, enchilada stuffed spaghetti squash. That's all one item. Wow. Whoa. Green chili Whoa. chicken, enchilada stuffed spaghetti squash. Jason, you're. Your reaction. Wait, I went first last time. I'll I go first. first time. Okay, Stephanie you go first. go first. I'll go first. It's fine. Uh, I'm not scared, Jason. So I would... <laughs> I had to think. Like any good Texas girl, you are also good at making uh, Southwestern slash Tex-Mex cuisine. I would look forward to making the green chili chicken and gelato stuffed spaghetti squash, for sure. I would... Definitely buy the Taiwanese popcorn chicken because that sounds delicious, but not in my wheelhouse. And I would try the zucchini tater tots. But again, as any good Texas girl, potatoes are way better than zucchini. So that's my answer. I'm that's sorry. just ridiculous. You were mostly you were mostly right, but I really I think the zucchini deserves more credit. Allison, you're up. All right, I would make the zucchini tater tots. Um, because zucchini's in season right now, and I love oh. going to the farmer's market, so they will supply me with them. That's a good call. I will buy the Taiwanese popcorn chicken because deep frying gets really stinky in the kitchen, so mm-hmm. I will leave that up to someone else. And I will try the green chili chicken enchilada stuffed spaghetti squash. <laughs> I will have to say that, I don't know if I wrote this, uh, sometimes I, I feel... I don't know. I, I don't want to be so negative. So I don't write when things don't turn out well, but that was not good. Oh, <laughs> no. Just, no, no, I do not oh. recommend it. I think I was just like doing these roundups of my pandemic cooking and that was one of them. And oof, no, that is not a repeat recipe. <laughs> I'll try. I'll make one and I'll invite you over and you can you can tell. Okay. Me. <laughs> All right. Allison gets points for honesty and, you know, because she's the guest. 
Now, Jason, it's all about pride. Well, now. you can finish strong. I uh, I think I need at least like two points, maybe three on this answer. So I better give really good answers. All right. I would make the zucchini tater tots and then I would bring you some, Mike. I'd bring you a huge bowl since you like <laughs> zucchini and they would be delicious. I would buy the Taiwanese popcorn chicken and I would bring that over to your house as well. And we'd share that and that would be delicious. <laughs> I would try the green, green chili chicken enchilada stuffed spaghetti squash. Because it sounds interesting, and but I would only try it because my wife makes the best green chili chicken enchiladas, and she also makes really good spaghetti squash. So no matter how good this would be, it would not be as good as my wife's. So oh, I would man. try it, but no, that's yeah. oh, that's a. Can I get multiple I'm, points? I'm, if I could make my phone ding fast enough, I'm giving you three points for that one. What? Three points? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Because because good argument. And you also made a plug for your wife's enchiladas, and mm. you kissed up to me a little bit. So uh, that's, I did. That's the trifecta. Well, so uh, what, what? What's the point total here? Our producer Tim has our tally. Whoa! <sighs> comeback win for Jason with three no, points. He's tied. It's the first time. He's tied. It's the he first time I've win. ever won. He's tied. It's tied Wait, with I got, Allison. No, no I got Allison one point three, for the first two. one. I got one oh, point for man, the first answer Tim. and three points for number three. That's four <sighs> points. Thank you, Tim. Good math. Good math. That is man. the first time I've ever won Bartok, ladies and gentlemen. It only took 51 episodes, 52 episodes. Hey, mm. I'll take it. I'll give him the win. You know what? <laughs> no, no, I, I'm really happy for you because this is your first time winning. Oh, it's not, I'm not being charitable. I mean, oh, I'm very happy. I'm very happy for you. <laughs> no, wait, we got to be fair here. I forgot about the point that I lost on question number two. Tim did just bring that up. So it is a tie. <gasps> I did not win Bartok for the first time. I will gladly share the title with you this week, Allison. Okay. I can, I'm, I believe in sharing. We can share the title of winner of Bartok. Which means Texas girl lost. <laughs> I did, and those were some good answers too. I like, I like, did like the tying thread like through all three. I really thought about it. I brought my A game, and I got one point. Sorry, Stephanie. It's okay. All right, we always uh, like to wrap up our show with some recommended listening, and since we have a tie today for the first time ever, uh, we're going to um, see if if Jason and Allison have some recommended listening, something that you you know might I don't know pair nicely with something like a flaming hot Cheeto cupcake. <laughs> so I was trying to think of something spicy and a little Ooh. cheesy, but I couldn't really you know it, I didn't want to go the cheesy route. <laughs> So, and then also oboe related because, you know, that's always on my mind. So I thought of the opening cadenza, um, oboe cadenza from the Bacchanal from the opera Samson and Delilah by Sansong. Um, I love that. Yeah, it's very fiery. And I, I think a lot of times the oboe doesn't get to play souls like that. So anytime an audition would ask for that, I'm like, yeah, I'm just going to. Go balls to the wall with this. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Jason, anything you want to recommend? Yeah, actually, you know, I've been listening to a lot of music that I haven't discovered before. And this is a piece that I kind of knew a little bit about, but I've been listening to it a lot more this past week. It's a piece called Recomposed by Max Richter. Uh, it's based on Vivaldi's Four Seasons, which we've all heard many, many times, of course. 
And when I was thinking about a, a, a cupcake with flaming hot Cheetos, that's definitely putting your own twist on something that's very standard. And that's exactly what Max Richter does with this piece, Recompose, where he takes Vivaldi's melodies and rhythmic patterns from the Four Seasons and puts a 21st century minimalist twist on it. And they are brilliant, all Four Seasons. Uh, there's a recording with Daniel Hope, uh, the violinist, and the Konzerthauskammer Orchester from Berlin that's available from Deutsche Grammophon. So I'll awesome. put that in the show notes as well. Way to put that together, Jason. That was that was nice connection. Congrats on the thank you. Oh wait, on the tie, not the win. Oh, thank you, thank you, Texas girl. Thank you, <laughs> <laughs> Allison. It's been great having you on the show. Thanks for joining us, and uh, and you know I look forward to testing all of your all of your kimchi recipes, and we'll we'll tell you if they're good or not for sure. But thanks for joining us today. Thank you. I look forward to baking for the orchestra like I always had in the past, now that we're going back yes. to full orchestra. So look out for cookies. Yes. Mainly. Maybe some brownies and, I don't know, other things. So. And maybe kimchi baked goods, although that sounds <laughs> terrible. <laughs> we will see. <laughs> awesome. It's good to see you, Allison. Thanks, Allison. Thank you. Well, on our next episode, we're looking forward to ticking off a first for this podcast. It will be the first time we have had a guest back for a second visit, and we figured if we were going to do this, we'd better start with our very own head honcho, music director Michael Stern. We'll talk about the exciting season ahead and how the creative process of programming has been shaped by events of the past year and a half. And... We'll have a special edition of Bar Talk that brings together two fundamental elements of the human experience, music and bread. Hmm. We'll have to see how that goes next time on Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. 